Martin is the chief executive of a relatively new charity, Kintsugi Hope. Um, and as a church, you will already know about this because we hosted their first ever Honesty Over Silence Day conference here, which was, for those of us who came, a life-changing day. Patrick and his wife, Diane, are absolutely passionate about ending the silence when it comes to our emotional well-being and when it comes to the area of mental health. And if we look across our nation at the moment, this is one of the most pressing issues that we face. You know, children are struggling in this area. And all of us sitting here today are not immune from this area either. But God loves to take our brokenness and to bring his hope and to pour out his healing power and to enable us to um, to look at some of these issues and to, to open dialogue, to let him into those spaces. And we want to be a church that offers sanctuary to everybody. This isn't a place where we wear our Sunday best. This is a place where we are real and we do life together. And sometimes we struggle with that. We like to hide behind a veneer of religious appropriateness. Can I just tell you, let's lose it. Let's lose the veneer. These guys are super passionate about this. Now, Patrick has written several books, um, which will be available for you to take a look at and to take away with you today if you'd like to. Uh, they also have some other products, which I'll let them share more about. Uh, but most importantly... They are pioneering something new, and we as a church want to be a part of that. We sent Sue and Jim Gibson to be part of their training for well-being groups, and we will be starting our own well-being group. We're hoping that more people will be trained up in due course. But today you're going to hear a lot more, and my advice would be to open up your heart to what God wants to say through this incredible couple and through Patrick this morning. So could we invite you forward, Patrick? Let's pray for you. Lord, we just want to thank you for Patrick. Thank you that he's a pioneer. Lord, we just look back and see what he did with XLP and the way that um, you've just blessed it incredibly. And Lord, we know that your um, fingerprints are all over what these guys are pioneering at the moment. Father, I pray today that wherever we find ourselves, whether we recognize that we have brokenness within us or whether actually you want to point that out to us today, um, I thank you that you're a God who loves to rebuild ruins. And I pray today that you would use Patrick as your mouthpiece to challenge us, to inspire us, to encourage us, to motivate us, and also to bring freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you, Nikki. That was lovely. Um, good morning. It is really, really, really lovely to be here. Um, you are automatically my favorite church I've spoken in this year um, because you're three miles away from my house. So um, I've spoken 66 times this year and I didn't have to get up at half six this morning, which is fantastic. So turn to the person beside you and say, You look absolutely fantastic this morning. You look absolutely brilliant. Wow, it is so good. It's so lovely to be here, um, to see a few familiar faces as well. Um, it's really, really lovely. And uh, um, we started Kintsugi Hope 18 months ago with my wife, Diane. Um, Jess Cooper, who some of you know, has joined us. Um, Ludovine at the back. I have to say, Ludovine comes to church, and she is like the rock behind Kintsugi Hope. And, uh, and uh, she does so much behind the scenes, and I'd love to just honor Ludovine um, for all that she does. 
Um, she is amazing. And we're so grateful. Um, do come look at the stand. What will be lovely for us is um, we send out a prayer thing, or Ludovin sends out a prayer thing every six weeks or so. It would be lovely for some people in our hometown to be on that. You know, often at these sort of things, you get six or seven real eager beavers signing up. Um, but it would be lovely if we felt like our whole hometown was um, gearing us on as we travel around the UK. Um, we also like, um, we do a special deal on the books for people that give £5 a month. We just give it away free. Also, um, we would say that if you're skint, um, just pay what you can afford. Um, the other things that we've done is often I talk, and at the end, I'd get lots of people come up to me going, um, I wish my husband was here. And, uh, and uh, so we put the slides. You'll see there's lots of slides on the DVD, um, and the books are there as well. But please, please come and chat to us afterwards. Now, back in the day, one of the most favorite things I used to do was the school assembly. Who remembers their school assembly as being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic moment of your school life. Put your hand up. Is there a few people, a few teachers in the house? There's got to be. Come on. And, uh, but I remember hearing this story from this kid, and he said he went into the school assembly hall, and, uh, and on the um, stage there was a table, and on the table there was this basket, and in the basket was these juicy-looking apples, and above the basket was the sign, and the sign said this, take one apple only, God is watching. And, uh, and all the kids sort of very nervously sort of came up, took an apple, had a good look around, went back. As they went out of the assembly hall, there was another table. And on that table was this delicious-looking chocolate brownie that would obviously been homemade. And a kid had written a sign above the chocolate brownie, and it said this, Take as much brownie as you want. God's watching the apples. And you know, so often we've communicated a God that is mean, a God that wants to spoil your fun, a God that doesn't understand possibly what you've been through. And, uh, and for me, I don't know, sometimes life can feel a bit like a game of Tetris. Who remembers Tetris? Um, these blocks, they fall out of the sky. And the ideal Tetris is you've got to get them all in a straight line, and then the line disappears. But the problem is they just keep coming, don't they? And they keep coming and they keep going. Why do things always seem to go wrong at once? And suddenly you can't get everything in the straight line. And you know what? Sometimes it can feel like it's game over. And life can be really, really tough. Who here, please put your hand up if you can relate to this next slide. Can anyone relate to this next slide? Put your hand up if you can relate to that next slide. <laughs> um, there it is. It's um, so often we have the idea of what a perfect life looks like. And sometimes it just isn't reality, and that's okay. I want to talk a little bit this morning um, about one of my favorite Bible characters, um, Elijah. I love Elijah. I sort of feel it should be a Hollywood blockbuster film, you know, because it's got so many interesting characters in it. It's got the villains of uh, Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel was an evil occult queen fascinated with the occult, um, building temples to the god Baal. Ahab was sort of like the hen-pecked husband. He sort of was controlled by his wife. But Baal worship was what went on there because they believed that Baal was in charge of the weather. And they made their um, living by agriculture. So you've got to keep Baal happy. And the reason, the way they kept Baal happy was disgusting. It was child sacrifice. It was throwing babies into furnaces. It was, it was the most grotesque things. But then you have Obadiah. 
007. Um, he is the double agent. He's in the temple grounds smuggling the prophets of God, keeping them safe. And I think Elijah must have been one of those guys that we are so often in, aren't we, when we look at things that are just wrong and praying for God to do something, but then realizing that he is the answer to his own prayers. Who's ever been through that sort of stage where you're asking God to do something, he's saying, I'm sending you. And, uh, and God says to Elijah, I want you to confront Ahab and Jezebel. So he does. He does. 1 Kings 17, he goes up to Ahab and Jezebel and says, there'll be no more rain nor dew until I say so. Who's in charge of the weather? Well, it's meant to be Baal. And then Elijah gets sent to the Cherith Ravine. Now, when I always used to study the Cherith Ravine in Sunday school, I always sort of saw, you know, Elijah was there sunbathing by the brook, um, having Burger King. It all looked very, very nice. The reality was it was 120 degrees. He would have been there a year. The brook actually would have been a murky, murky thing. You wouldn't really want to drink much of that. Um, ravens, which were known as an unclean bird, were dropping raw meat um, a couple of times a day. God was providing, but it was still difficult. And then, after a year of being at the Cherith Ravine, the prophet comes to God, and the, uh, God speaks to Elijah and says, you know what? It's time to go um, to Zenopath. Now, Zenopath was Jezebel's hometown. It was 18 miles away from the Cherith Ravine. And uh, and so he would have known that Zenopath would have been full of Baal worshippers. And imagine poor old Elijah. You know, he's had no human company for a year. He's pretty hungry. And he gets there. And the first person he has to talk to is a suicidal widow trying to rub it in her sticks for her last meal. He must have thought, come on, God, seriously. Um, you know, is there any, any other options here? But then we know in the midst of brokenness, again, God provides and there's a miracle, and the jar never runs dry, and God provides again. But then the sun dies, and whose fault it is? It's Elijah's fault, of course. And he does that thing where, you know, he lays on the dead body. We hear it at every festival in the summer now, that you lay on a dead body, and then the body comes back to life, and, and then there's another miraculous thing. But then the whole thing climaxes at Carmel, where he gets all the prophets of Baal there. You know the story where, the, and, uh, and he, he has this competition, really, isn't it, where um, there's a sacrifice and the prophets of Baal are meant to uh, call down fire. doesn't happen. And then God calls down fire on Elijah's sacrifice and the prophets of Baal are wiped out at that point. Now, I reckon at that point, Elijah must have thought, this is it. Book tour festival tour. This is it. Everything is utterly fantastic. I'm going to get so many speaking engagements out of this. It's going to be brilliant. The reality is Elijah was broken. He was disappointed. Hang on. Jezebel has put a death threat out on his life and he's having to run. And you know, the reality is life doesn't always work out the way we think it's going to. Redundancies are made. Prayers don't always get answered the way we think they should. Marriages do break down. People do get ill. Accidents do happen. Test results come back with terrifying news. 1 Kings 19 verse 1 to 5 says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah the same, May the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba and Judah, he left his servant there. And while he was there, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a boom bush. He sat down under it and prayed that he may die. 
I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. You see, Elijah is in this really dark, lonely place. You know, for me, um, I've often found myself in that place, and it's often been because I just work too hard. I'm one of those typical Christian workers. Um, I get very passionate about what I do, work incredibly hard, and then burn out and then rest for at least a day, and then go and burn out again. And uh, it's a little bit like, I don't know, if you put your phone on charge, and you only leave it on charge for 10 minutes, it's got 10%, right? Your phone works as well on 10% as it does 100%. It does exactly the same thing. It just doesn't last as long. And so often, many of us are living in that cycle time and time and time again. We just don't learn. We just keep doing it. And, uh, and, you know, for me, um, everyone would look on the outside and they'd go, wow, Patrick, you know, your life looks amazing. Uh, a number of years ago now, we had a visit um, to the charity I was running from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. I hope you caught those names as they dropped there. <laughs> and, um, and here you have, this is Diane, my wife, sitting next to the um, Duchess of Cambridge. It's quite a funny story, actually. Um, she's turned to my wife and said, do you like my dress? I don't know what you meant to say when um, the Duchess of Cambridge says, do you like my dress? No, not really. And, uh, and she turns to him and she, um, she went, yeah, because William told me I look like a tablecloth. <laughs> I was like, now you mention it. No, no, I didn't say that. And, um, and it was an amazing time and they came along, you know, they met some of our young people and, uh, and they came twice in a year, spent half a day with us. And, uh, and there was this photo that's outside the church that I was given to run the charity. And uh, in front of us, what you can't see, there was probably, yeah, roughly is about as many people as there are here this morning. Um, but you've all got cameras. And they're all flashing. Oh, like, like, there's like strobe lightning going on. And I'm turning to her in this photograph going, I haven't got a clue how you do this. This is intense. How do you cope? And, uh, and I went home that night, you know, and, uh, and my phone was uh, buzzing like all the time because these photos had literally gone around the world. They'd been in, gone to the States, they'd gone to OK Magazine and Hello Magazine and magazines I'd never heard of before and the BBC News had done a big feature on it which I had to speak on and stuff. And everyone was going, wow, it looks fantastic. The reality is that in that picture, I'm someone really struggling with anxiety and just to go through a really tough time of depression. But the showreel looks great. But the behind the scenes is something different. And you know, so often as I started to struggle, I try to think of all the sermons that I'd heard about mental health in my life. And I couldn't think of many, to be honest. I've been to so many festivals and so many conferences and so many seminars over my life, and I was struggling. And I was trying to think of some of the teaching I had heard about it, that anxiety was seen as not trusting God enough that depression was a sin, that somehow I didn't have enough faith. And, and then what happens then is you just end up feeling more bad about yourself because you just think, I'm not enough. I, I can't do this Christianity luck. I can't do it. And I started to write. And, uh, and I started to write this book called Honesty Over Silence. And uh, because to be honest with you, I'm fed up with the show. I'm fed up with being unauthentic. I'm fed up with pretending everything's okay. I am desperate for something that is honest and real. And I'm desperate for the church of Jesus Christ to be a little bit more honest and real as well. And so I started writing this and, uh, and I thought, you know what? I'm never going to be asked to speak anywhere ever again after this. They're all going to think I'm totally and utterly backslidden. And, uh, and I thought, I'm going to have to stop. And, uh, but then I read the Psalms. 40% of the Psalms are laments. They're David crying out to God. 
God, I don't get this, but I'm going to love you anyway. I don't get this, but I'm going to hang in there everywhere. And, uh, and I know that that is our heart cry. And, uh, and, uh, and I realized that, that I really had to go in this. But I didn't want to just tell my story. I wanted it to be really real. And uh, so I, this is my friend, Rach. And uh, Rach had a son that has a life-limiting condition. He has to be turned every two hours. She gives him injections, 20 injections a day. And uh, I interviewed her for my TBN show, and I said, um, Rach, how do you cope with this? And she goes, it's a hard, you know? Because so often in church, we talk about seasons. Next season is my son dies. I want to stay in this season as long as I can. But then she said, you know what? I couldn't do this without my faith. There's absolutely no way I could get up in the morning without my faith. The next person, he's one of my best friends. Um, he's a senior police officer. He's one of the most senior police officers in this country. He had 1,500 police officers working to him. Um, he knew his Bible inside out and back to front. He's just an amazing guy. And uh, then about six years ago now, there's a phone call, and he's down A&E. And, uh, and I'm like, um, we lived in a very similar area in London, and uh, that was tough in terms of knife crime and gangs and stuff. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what's happened to him? And uh, he had a breakdown. He just couldn't do it anymore. The Tetris moment had happened. And, uh, and I went around his house and uh, week after week after week uh, afterwards. And he, I remember him saying to me, Patrick, the whole man up thing hasn't worked out very well for me, has it? Hasn't worked out very well for me. And then there's the most tender chapter, which if you read it, you do need some tissues. This is Alan and Jackie Slough. And uh, their 16-year-old son completed a suicide. And I was like, why on earth do you want to tell me your story? Because they asked. And, um, and they were like, are you kidding? Six and a half thousand young men and young women, and not just young, but predominantly, are taking, uh, completing suicides every single year in this country. Why are we not talking about this? You know, I was on the BBC and the guy said to me, on, he said, you know, if six and a half thousand people were being eaten by bears in this country every year, we'd do something about it. I was like, if two people were eaten by bears in this country, we'd do something about it. But the fact is, we've got to talk about it every single day on our railways, every single day. We're coming up to Christmas. You know, Christmas is a really, really tough time for so many people. And so when I was studying this stuff, I started to really try and understand um, some of the issues around anxiety. And I, I, um, with my books, I'd have to read all the theologians, I'd have to read all the psychologists. And when it came to the one on anxiety, I wasn't quite getting it because it was all very technical, you know, fight or flight um, and all that stuff. And then I just read blogs from ordinary people like you and me. And I came up with this little list, which I guess described what anxiety was like for me. It says this, anxiety is your brain not being able to turn off. It's the unanswered text message that kills us inside. Especially WhatsApp, right? Because you can tell it's been read. Just answer the flipping text. It believes every negative scenario you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions drawn as your mind takes off and you have no choice to follow its lead. It's apologizing for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and a lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's the fear of failure, then striving for perfection, then beating yourself up when you don't get there. It tells you you're wrong, they don't like you. It's constantly asking the what if questions. And I realized that what we've done with people who struggle with anxiety, and probably one in four of us in this room do, is that we haven't really offered much. All we've said to you is, you know, you need to trust God a little bit more, as if you'd never thought of that. You know, you just need to pray a little bit harder, as if that, you'd never thought of that as well. And actually, I started to realize that the people that struggle with anxiety, I started to meet so many of them, are some of the most caring, loving, sensitive, have incredible empathy for people that I've ever met. 
because our strengths can also be our weakness. And actually, people with anxiety, they take so much courage. And I think I came across this definition, and I thought, that is it for me. That describes it. It says this, more than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to be, do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be accepted and liked, so you try too hard sometimes. You try too hard sometimes. I love these little cartoons. Um, my friend sent me this. Um, anxiety. What if nobody likes me? What if I taste weird? What if I'm too cold? What if I'm too hot? What if I'm just right and I can never live up to it again? <laughs> The pearls of overthinking. I don't know if you ever come across it, you know. I made a mistake. What do people think of me? Am I good enough? Am I doing the right job? Everyone's staring at me. Am I doing this wrong? There's this really, really useful book um, on clinical depression called The Curse of the Strong. And I think this describes it to me. The psychiatrist wrote it, said that nine times out of ten, he can tell the personal characteristics of someone that's suffering from depression. Nine times out of ten, not every time, but nine times out of ten, they're these. Moral strength, reliability, Diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. Not weak people. Actually, Oliver Cromwell, Winston Churchill, um, Abraham Lincoln, Vincent van Gogh, Mother Teresa. Not weak people. So I've come to the conclusion that depression, anxiety, and panic attacks are not a sign of weakness. They're signs of trying to remain strong for too long. And actually what they need is to see shame is that that's what does it. It makes us feel shame. And, and you know, Brené Brown's brilliant on this. She says, um, shame loves silence, secrecy, and judgment. It has two gremlins that will say in your head every single day, who do you think you are and you're not enough? And actually shame and guilt are two different things. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. Isn't it interesting that Jesus always dealt with people's shame? When he looked at Zacchaeus, he dealt with his shame. That was the key thing. That's the thing that binds people up. Elijah was in this place of brokenness. And I know for me and Diane, when we've been in a place of brokenness, there was this image um, which meant so much to us. And it's when you break a bowl, you mend it with super glue. And the whole idea of super glue is you hide the cracks. Um, if we're honest, we probably just chuck the bowl away these days. But, you know, back in the day, we used to mend it. We used to uh, uh, hide the cracks. And then what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, you make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique. There's not a pot like that on planet Earth. And let me tell you something. There's not anyone like you on planet Earth as well. Our scars are not there to be ashamed of. They make us who we are. Our scar is a place of healing. And, uh, and so we've got to uh, talk about some of these issues. I've got a friend called um, Catherine, and um, when she found out me and Diamond starting a, a charity called Kintsugi Hope, um, she came and she made these pendants. Uh, every single one's bespoke, handmade. Um, they take forever to make. And, uh, and she said, take them and sell them and make money for the charity. She said this, the scars of our lives are not to be hidden, for they make us who we are. The stories of people wearing these and having the most amazing conversations is incredible. How did God deal with Elijah? Well, 1 Kings 19, we see the story continues. And what I love about it is there's no pep talk. There's no reminder of the good old days. You know, uh, come on, Elijah, cheer up a bit, mate. Xenopath was pretty good, wasn't it? Cherifravine, that was, that was a pretty good gig. Uh, I know it was a bit dodgy with the ravens and stuff, but you know, you know, you've done a good, cheer up a little bit. You'll be all right, snap yourself out of it. Do you know what happened? 
God sent an angel to care for him tenderly, providing him with food. He's saying, you're tired, you need to sleep, you need to rest. Mike Iaconelli says this, most of us don't come home at night staggering drunk. Instead, we come home staggering tired, worn out, exhausted, and drained because we live too fast. And, you know, um, as I started to sort of think through some of this stuff, is um, uh, a friend of mine said, Patrick, I think you need to understand a little bit more about self-compassion. You're really hard on yourself. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm an activist. I don't do self-compassion. I don't want all that stuff that's just annoying and selfish, um, you know. And she was like, I think you've totally misunderstood what self-compassion is. It's not giving yourself endless pleasure and more biscuits, more wine, more bubble baths. It isn't actually that at all. Um, Self-compassion is this. It's talking to yourself the way you would talk to your best friend. So I've got various friends here, you know. And, uh, you know, obviously Diane's my best friend. And if she came up to me and goes, "Um, Patrick, I'm struggling... Um, I'm really struggling with um, listening to you talk this morning, um, and <laughs> it's a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and uh, I'd, I'd be like, Dine, you're, you're such a loser. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you're absolutely, what, what are you talking about? You know, you know, um, you know sh- shall we talk about what happened yesterday? Shall we talk about that yesterday? And uh, actually, Dine's my best friend, and I want to treat her with compassion. Um, but I tell you who I beat up all the time, and I would say that too, guess. Me, constantly beating myself up, constantly thinking about all the things I didn't do right. Particularly when you do a lot of speaking, because at the end, you always get a Christian that wants to tell you something in love. (laughs) When you see a Christian that wants to tell you something in love, you just need to run, because they're just about (laughs) to destroy you. And um, how do you treat a friend that's struggling? Empathy. Patience, tenderness, gentleness. Compassion actually means this, to suffer with, to be conscious of another's distress and want to alleviate that pain. So self-compassion means you've got to start doing that for yourself. It means that you've got to let go of the inner critic. The inner critic that always tells you how rubbish you are and how failure you are. Um, Particularly if you're struggling with mental health. You know, I've got glasses on. Some of us struggle with physical health. We will talk about this, but often we don't talk about the mental health. Why? It makes no sense. Elijah, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down uh, your altars, and put death to the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me as well. Self-compassion and self-indulgence are two really different things. The second thing I'd want to say is obviously Elijah's in this time of real confusion. And I always say this is a really cool thing to do when you're in those times of confusion, is to get curious about what you're thinking about. Carl Jung, a famous psychologist, says this, whatever you resist persists. So the challenge is, if I said to you this morning, I don't want any of you now to think about chocolate. (laughs) Dairy milk, Mars bar, cabbage cream egg. Some of you are sitting there going, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. Um, you're sort of missing the point. And, uh, but the reality is, is so often we're filled as negative stuff comes. And what happens actually is a lot of preachers misquote a verse in Corinthians that talks about taking captive every thought. And the way they misquote it is they say that every time a thought comes into your head, you need to bash it in the name of Jesus. Um, and then it won't come anymore. But that doesn't actually work, does it? And Because uh, whatever you resist persists. And a friend of mine says this. He said, if you can imagine your thoughts a little bit like railway trains, if you're out in the London underground, you will know that a train will come every couple of minutes. 
you can actually stand there on the London Underground if you want and shout at the train, you will not come in the name of Jesus, the train is going to come. <laughs> and, uh, um, but he said this, what you can do is you can decide whether you're going to get on that train or not. You can let that negative thought take you into a dark tunnel or you can say, actually, I'm taking a step back right now. And so sometimes, like, name the train. Here comes my fear of cancer train. I'm not going there today. I am praying and I am filling my head. So you don't actually um, resist, you replace. You replace with the word of God. That's what you do. You replace what God says over you. So if you don't remember anything from this talk, you need to remember this. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe. Have doubt. I don't know how many preachers you've heard say, have doubt. Have doubt. Question them. Think about it. Struggling doesn't mean you've failed. It means you're human. Who can relate to this image? Positive, 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 negative. It's true. I'm a failure. <laughs> you are not on your own. Self-compassion, self-indulgence, two different things. Get curious about your thoughts. And then this is the bit I love where Elijah thinks, you know what? I'm the only one going through this because sometimes that's the way it feels. And, uh, you know, God says, you know what? In 1 Kings 19 verse 18, he says, you know what? There's 7,000 others, Elijah. There's 7,000 others that haven't bowed to bow. Um, Obadiah's been doing his job pretty good. And uh, he's been hiding them away. And, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, that in church and in all the places I speak, so many people say to me, I feel like no one understands me. I have so many people say, I feel like I'm on the outside always looking in. I don't feel like I belong. Loneliness is one of the biggest killers of our time, yet we're the most connected we've ever been. You know, the Church Urban Fund did a survey and they said that mental health and loneliness, social isolation are the two biggest issues the church are facing today. And obviously the two are related. And some of the stats, as me and Diane did our research, was incredible. It says this, being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger and massively increases your risk of depression. The effect of loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Three quarters of GPs see between five, one and five lonely people a day. You are not on your own. You're not on your own. Uh, when I ran XLP for 22 years, and you know we just had the Royals visit, and it was all going very well, and, uh, and I felt God say, um, Patrick, it's time to let it go. I was like, don't be stupid, I'm a founder, we don't let go. And, uh, and I spoke to lots of friends, which wasn't particularly helpful, because they were all founders and still running their charities. And, uh, but I realized that God was breaking our heart for something else. And they say that vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion and energy. And I was like, so what's the vision? What's the dream? You know, that's why Jim Wallace says Martin Luther King never stood up in Washington and had a quarter of a million people there without Facebook and Twitter and went, I've got a complaint to make. Or I'd like you to um, see my five-year business plan, please. He said, I've got a dream. And I'm going to rally people around the dream of equality and justice. And so me and Diane, we started to dream, and uh, we dreamt of a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities where everyone can grow and flourish. And you know what? They weren't a load of pretty words stuck on a, a PowerPoint. We knew that when you feel understood and you feel accepted and you feel safe and you feel supportive, then you will grow and flourish. That's what happens. And so we started to look at movements because I really felt God say to me, don't start a charity, start a movement. To be honest, I was a little bit burnt out on charity. I didn't ever want to fundraise ever again in my life. And, uh, and I was like, I don't really want to start another charity. He said, think movements. So we started to study movements. So we looked at Park Run. Anyone done Park Run here? 
That's, um, that's quite a few of you. That's great. And park, it's amazing. Hundreds of thousands of people running in parks across our country. Um, different ages, different cultures, uh, different abilities. You belong, but you don't have to fit in. Rock choir did exactly the same thing. They started choirs all over our country, choirs in communities. They now hire Wembley Arena, um, different cultures, different ages, different abilities. Something happens when people get a cause in the grassroots. We, anyone done rock choir? Um, not so many. Um, <laughs> we looked at Alcoholics Anonymous, a 12-week program that's literally spread throughout the world. Um, we went to Weight Watchers. Anyone? Let's not do that one. And... <laughs> I joined Weight Watchers and it was fascinating because on the first week they sat down and went, you know what, we've realised now from all the research that actually a lot of this isn't about food, it's about the way you think. And we need to teach about gratitude and perfectionism and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and so we decided, uh, a bit like the AA, that we would write a 12-week course looking at well-being and uh, we'd look at anxiety and stigma and self-acceptance and anger and... and, uh, and uh, forgiveness and hope and resilience and all these different questions. And, uh, and we thought, how on earth are we going to roll this out across the country? You know, it's just me and Diane now, and um, we've got four kids and a mortgage. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. And uh, so we realized that every church we know has a small group, life group, hub group, connect group, um, home group, whatever they call it. Why don't we say to churches, why don't you run this in your small group? Um, we have small groups that run for mums and tots, for homeless people, for people in all sorts of different situations. So we thought we've got to model this. And so um, we did it in our home group. And what was fascinating is, is that we went up to people in our community because we didn't just want it to be for us. So we went up to people in our community and uh, we'd go, we're starting a Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing group. Would you like to come? And they'd go, what on earth is that? And it took us about six months to learn how to say the word kintsugi. So we just about got that well. And, and then we'd go, it's about being broken. And then halfway through us describing what it is, they all go, oh, the gold thing. But then what was fascinating is go, yeah, I come, I'm broken. My husband's just left. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. Um, I'm broken. My kids suffer from anxiety and it's absolutely destroying me. Um, Lady in the corner shop, self-harming, 65. Next door neighbor being involved in a very, very difficult relationship where her husband left and wasn't particularly nice to her. Our life group trebled in size. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, who are all these people in my home? And Diane is leading it. I just want to be a punter. I don't want to lead anything. And, uh, and she said on the first week, just turn to the person beside you and tell them about a high point in your life and a low point in your life. So I turned to the gentleman next to me, who I'd sort of known on and off my whole life, you know, um, he knew my parents more than me, and I'd just known him all my life, really, and I thought, oh, this is safe, this is good. And he started to tell me about his life, and I learned more in five minutes than I'd done in being connected to the same church for 45 years. And I said to him at the end of it, I went, mate, I am so sorry. How come you went through hell and back, and we created a culture where I didn't know that? We're doing this every Sunday. And it was amazing. He, he's a close mate of mine now. We got to the week on forgiveness, and, uh, and again, Catherine, who made the pendants, um, she was like, you Christians, you have to forgive everyone, don't you? She's not from a faith background. And uh, she goes, can you explain that to the rest of the group, please? I turned to Diane and went, yeah, I've been wondering about that as well. I was wondering if you could... Um, <clears throat> I just got that death stare that only a wife can give, you know. <laughs> I was the most useless assistant leader ever. 
And, uh, but you know what? We launched it last week. Um, we had faith for 40 people. We had 90 people come. And, uh, and churches have been amazing. They're running it in homeless hostels. Um, they're running it, running it for um, people involved with addiction things. They're running it uh, for mums and tots. Because often at mums and tots, all we do is we have coffee. Let's talk about something meaningful that affects all of us. And the beautiful thing about it is it was not about us being the rescuer. It's about us being human. And, uh, and I believe we need to let go of the harmful notion that there's those in need and those able to help. We're all in need and we can all help. And uh, I've been praying like mad to God, God, please, I want to see a new move of your spirit. But you know what? If the new move of your spirit is going to be in some massive, massive, massive warehouse in America somewhere with a load of session musicians and a very famous speaker and God TV are going to come and beam it all over the world and call it revival, I think I might quit. But you know what? If it could be in prisons and in cafes, and in hospitals, and in schools, and in people's homes, if it could be in brothels, if it could be led not by the great and the good, but the fragile, and the beaten up, and the hungry, and the vulnerable, I'm up for it. And uh, be amazing. I want to show you a video to finish with, but um, I just wanted to finish also by quoting uh, the famous theologian Winnie the Pooh. Um, he said, don't walk behind me. I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me. I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Um, our Kintsugi Hope Group, we started a, um, a WhatsApp group. You know, we send each other inspirational quotes all the time. And Ludovine, uh, my PA, she sent me this group, uh, this thing called Flawsome. And a Flawsome means an individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. Now, I said to Ludovine, Ludovine's from France, and, uh, and I thought it was like, you know, Ludovine, actually, in England, we don't make up words, <laughs> you know, and uh, we actually stick with the dictionary, it's, you're going to have to catch on, and, uh, and I remember, um, I think it was Diane or Ludovine, one of them said, Google it, and there it was, in the dictionary, flawsome, an individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless, how cool is that? That is totally and utterly cool, because that is what you are. And, you know, for so many of us, we beat ourselves up. We listen to the inner critic. And, uh, and I just wanted to show this video now. It's only three or four minutes, and, uh, which deals with that issue. And then we're going to pray um, because, actually, that's not a nice place to be. And uh, I believe that God wants to bring some freedom um, this morning. So check out. These are called the things we tell ourselves. So um, we did that in our Kintsugi Hope Group on the week on self-acceptance. And... Uh, and when it finished, I, am, I must admit, I was there and I went, well, that's girly. <clears throat> and, um, and American. I don't know why. I'm not that American's bad. I thought girly and American. And, uh, but I'm going to be supportive of my wife. And uh, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And, and then the next day, God really got me. And uh, I, was, uh, I, I saw a picture at my parents' house. And uh, it, there it is. And... Uh, my head is really big. And, um, and then there was another one. And, and I was like, oh my goodness, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. And I realized that, that God doesn't want us to listen to the inner critic. He wants us to listen to his voice of love and compassion. Whatever you resist, persist. So what we need to do is we need to replace. And we need to listen to the voice of love and, uh, and uh, give that voice. And, you know, because some of us, you're doing, you're doing incredible. You know, some of you guys who do struggle with mental health, you are incredible because you get up and you come to church every Sunday. You're here. You show up. 
And, and that's what success is, right? Success is following your heart, is showing up. And, uh, and what we need, honestly, is we need you to be more you because you're made in the image of God. And we live in a culture and a society that keeps on telling you to change. And don't be wrong, you know, we make mistakes and choices have consequences, but actually there's something so beautiful about someone who's embracing who they are in God and allowing God's love to um, filter through them. So if you're able, why don't you stand? Um, the worship band can come back. I'm going to pray. And uh, thank you, Jesus. Really appreciate the signers um, here today. Um, we've got a group in Exeter that are actually going to take our well-being group and um, do it for people within the deaf community. And I think that's going to be really special. And uh, I really appreciate when you see people um, who serve week in and week out like that. It's a special thing to do. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that your presence is here now. And I thank you, God, that your love is all over this place, Lord God. And because this is a sanctuary, like Nikki said, this is a safe and a supportive space where you don't have to be perfect to come to church. In fact, you just come because um, you're looking at our heart. That's what you want. Um, you want our heart. And God, we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Father God. If you know, um, and there'll be a few of us, don't worry, that inner critic, that's something that, that is an issue for you. Not just occasionally, but it's something that happens fairly regularly, that constant um, telling yourself how useless you are or try harder and all that sort of stuff. If that's you, can you just put your, in a really unhyped way, put your hand up in the air, just put it up really, really high because um, it would be great to pray for you guys. Um, wow. Just put your hand up really high. Um, I know you never do this on an appeal normally. Just look around and realize that 50% of people have got their hands up. So you're not on your own. You're not on your own. You're not on your own. You're 